Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. I want to reassure the American people that full, the full resources of the federal government are working to assist local authorities to save lives and to help the victims of these attacks. We have taken all appropriate, appropriate security precautions to protect the American people. And we have taken the necessary security precautions to continue the functions of your government. We have been in touch with the leaders of Congress and with world leaders to assure them that we will do what is, whatever is necessary to protect America and Americans. The resolve of our great nation is being tested. But make no mistake, we will show the world that we will pass this test. God bless. Hello. This is Robbie Martin for part two of our fourth 9-11 episode for the month of September 2021. How's everybody doing out there? Well, first, I just wanted to start by saying if you already listened to the previous one, then you sort of understand the framework for what this episode's going to be like. But if you didn't, or if you just weren't paying attention, we have provided an interactive map filled with hundreds of inputs that provide interesting connections between the 9-11 hijackers, the so-called activities of the Israeli art students, the 2001 anthrax attacks, and Rudy Giuliani's anthrax cleanup efforts, and Bush's activities on the day of 9-11, all taking place in Florida. So this is a interactive map of Florida that you can access as a Patreon subscriber, as you follow along with this podcast. And if you're not a subscriber, you can take my word for it about some of these addresses that I am not going to reveal on the podcast directly. But I will be revealing a lot of them that have already been made public and such things as the leaked DEA memo discussing what they believe was a potential Israeli spying operation that was taking place in the late 90s and early 2000s and other public documents like the so-called FinList, which basically just has a easy-to-access database of all the known listed addresses of all the 9-11 hijackers. So a lot of this map has been compiled using that, about half of it. The other half has been compiled by me personally, but pulling from all public documents, publicly available documents. I am not doxing anybody here. All I'm doing is finding property records for a lot of this other stuff and the time period in which certain people own them. And again, if you find any errors in the map or if you have any suggestions or additions that you think I should add to it, please contact me. But first, we're going to start with the so-called network of Israeli art students 
the majority of whom were operating in the United States, were located in Florida. Let me tell you a little bit about the Israeli Art Student Network. Now, I recommend, again, going back to Christopher Ketchum's research on this subject because he's done an impeccable job of going through as much of it as he possibly can. But who are the Israeli art students? Who are they? And keep in mind, keep the map up on still in Hollywood, Florida. This is I want you to keep it up here because I'm sort of going to take you through this interactively. I know it's a little gimmicky or whatever, and if you don't, you're not a subscriber, I'm sorry. You know, when it comes to the Israeli art students and the hijackers, in this particular instance with Florida, I am going to give out all this information on the podcast publicly. I will start by giving you some of the most explosive and interesting stuff that you can see visually on the map. So it's not just me making these claims. A little bit of backstory on the Israeli art students for people who don't know what they are. They appear to be some kind of Massive spying operation involving people using the cover story of them being from an Israeli art school, selling art door to door. Now, one of the most compelling things about this massive spying operation was that the DEA wrote an internal memo about it, warning all of their lower downs to watch out for these people and describing all these encounters, specific encounters, they actually give out addresses in this memo, and this memo leaked. So you can actually find out where some of these Israeli art students were living, what they were described as doing by the DEA, and the majority of the Israeli art students were located in Florida. The largest percentage of them were in Florida. And a large percentage of those were located, again, in Hollywood, Florida, around the time of 9-11 and before, late 90s, early 2000s, and the reason why the DEA was the one who wrote this memo about the Israeli art students and it wasn't some other agency like the FBI or something like that is because the DEA basically suspected that this was some kind of Israeli intelligence operation to surveil DEA activities because often these art students would come to the doors of DEA offices that weren't even like publicly listed or would not normally be places where door-to-door salesmen would typically go at all. Now, what was so fascinating to these agents writing this memo is they seemed to think that it was absolutely baffling what the purpose of this op could be. Because if it was to surveil in stealth, it seemed like they were doing the exact opposite of stealth. They were making as much noise as possible, barely having a cover story to hold up so that you know, only after just a few questions, they would completely cave and be obvious that they were lying. I mean, basic intelligence agents training, they didn't seem to have. So what really was this operation? It's unknown. But people like Christopher Ketchum have written extensively about this. I know someone who helped found dancesafe.org, who got visited by these Israeli art students in 1999. The DEA actually suspects in their memo that they're also involved somehow in ecstasy trafficking and that they've even tipped off like ecstasy dealers for impending DEA raids. This connects even to a larger framework that involves apparent cutout companies that could be fronts for Israeli intelligence like Amdocs, urban moving systems that 
have odd connections to drug trafficking and the 9-11 attacks. Now, in the DEA memo, they actually describe a few incidents in detail where they encountered these Israeli art students and how strange the scenario was. Now, it almost seems like burn after reading level incompetence, in a way. If you've ever seen that Coen Brothers movie, you'll know what I mean. So what's really strange is in the Tampa DEA office, they describe a scenario where, and this is one of the best things, I think, from the whole document. This is from a March 1st, 2001 report. This memo was predating 9-11. And it says, a DEA special agent in the Tampa Division offices responded to a knock at one of the fifth floor offices. At the door was a young female who immediately identified herself as an Israeli art student who had beautiful art to sell. She was carrying a crudely made portfolio of unframed pictures. Aware of the art student alert, the agent invited the girl to an interview room where he was joined by a colleague to listen to the girl's presentation. Stopping really quickly, the DEA agent who encountered this door-to-door saleswoman had already gotten an alert about this operation and knew that it was covered for some kind of intel thing. So he slyly said, oh yeah, come on in. We're interested in your art. Let's go to one of our interrogation rooms. And he was joined by a fellow DEA agent where they basically interrogated her together but made it just seem like they were interested in her art, apparently. Now, the memo continues. She had approximately 15 paintings of different styles, some copies of famous works, and others similar in style to famous artists. When asked her name, she identified herself as Bella Polkson and pointed out one of the paintings was signed by that name. Then things got interesting. In the middle of her presentation, she changed her story and claimed that the paintings were not for sale but that she was there to promote an art show in Sarasota, Florida, and asked for the agent's business cards so that information regarding the show could be mailed to them. Wow, that's a rather pushy, poorly executed evasion technique on her part. So she changed her story mid-questioning, and then just instead of like answering the uh, agent's questions, she's just like, oh, no, 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 just give me your address. Like, give me your address and I'll send you the card. Then her name, which ended up being a fake name, couldn't say whether she knew who was running the art show or when it was. Later, it was determined that she lied about her name, of course. In the Salon Christopher Ketchum article, it says one DEA agent named in the art student report told Salon that the best possible explanation for the affair, and he admitted to being utterly baffled by it, was that drug dealers were involved. Why us if not because of the DEA's mission, the agent asked. I mean, what would Israel Intel want with us? Here's another avenue of inquiry to take. Israel organized crime is now the biggest dealer of ecstasy in the United States. These students? It was Israeli organized crime judging our strength, getting a survey of our operations. What if I wanted to burglarize your building and go through your files? I'd do reconnaissance, get a sense of the floor plan and security. And then Christopher Ketchum has a really good point. The problem with this theory is the obvious one. In the annals of crime chutzpah, for drug dealers to brazenly approach drug agents in their homes and offices may represent an all-time world record. Now, Christopher Ketchum throws out two other theories. A noisy operation, some kind of smokescreen scenario, but smokescreen for what? Well, that's where it gets darker. And Christopher Ketchum doesn't really go down this rabbit hole too deeply in his reporting on it. 
But what if it's some kind of smokescreen or way to take attention away from the 9-11 hijackers? Now, after this, apparently they sort of put her on the defensive and she cracked instantly. And she just straight up says that she was dropped off at their building by her, quote, team leader who knew everything and can answer more questions. The DEA memo continues and says the team leader was described as a male driving a red van, dropping off this female with another four females and a male. Now, apparently she told him where her other two female companions were in the area and some of these Tampa DEA agents went out the office and started just canvassing the area and immediately they just found two of the women I guess very easily noticeable they were near a busy office complex nearby and as the agents were speaking with them on the street and these agents I'm sure did not look like they were wearing regular street clothes they probably looked like feds the team leader pulls up in the van in this red van now what happens is the tampa dea agents have enough probable cause to i guess convince these people all of them to come in for interviews and they actually identify the real name of bella polkson and she was now identified as inbal vakshi the team leader a man named hanan Sirfati was eager to identify himself as the team leader. I know this makes no sense whatsoever if this was some kind of intel op, but this just gets weirder and weirder. Now, the woman who had identified herself previously as Bella Polkson now breaks and admits to the DEA agents that she was actually using a license from a friend of hers named Bella Polkson who just left the country. Of course, now that Hanan Sirfati was identified as this team leader. They interviewed him extensively at the DEA offices. He tells them that he actually resides in the Fort Lauderdale and Hollywood area. He gives them his address. And if you looked in this DEA leaked memo, it just keeps going on and on and on. And it identifies various Israeli art student people as supposed team leaders of this intel gathering operation and talks about how many federal buildings they were hanging around. I mean, there's dozens of incidents they describe in these reports. But that team leader I just told you about the Tampa encounters, Safradi, Hanan Safradi, who just went in and said, yeah, I'm the team leader. What do you want to talk about? Who is this guy? Well, remember I told you that this is probably the most compelling part of the interactive map? Go to the interactive map now. Hollywood, Florida. 701 South 21st Avenue. Now, by now, you shouldn't have turned on the Israeli art student layer. Don't turn it on yet. You should only have the 9-11 hijacker layer on. But I just took you to 701 South 21st Avenue in Hollywood, Florida. What do you immediately see here? What's, the, what's one of the first things you notice? When you click on that 701 South 21st Avenue address, you see that this is actually the address of several Israeli art students, including the team leader who had just harassed the Orlando offices using one of his, I guess, team members. 
Hanan Safradi. And where did Muhammad Atta live around the same exact time? Well, he lived at 1818 Jackson Street in Hollywood, Florida. Now, what happens when you zoom in on the map and look at the distance between where the Israeli art student team leader lived, Hanan Safradi, at 701 South 21st Avenue, Hollywood, Florida, and where Muhammad Atta lived, 1818 Jackson Street, Hollywood, Florida. You can measure the distance if you pull out the ruler tool in the map. The distance is 0.35 miles away. That's how far away it is. That's a bird's eye view. And when you do driving directions, it's 0.4 miles away. Now, why is this significant? Why it could just be a coincidence, right? That these, that this team of Israeli art students ran by a ringleader, Hanan Safradi, lived 0.4 miles away from Muhammad Atta and several other hijackers. What are the chances of that? Well, let's let's keep going with this. Let's keep going. Another Israeli art student named Sarah Mina Sassoon, she lists her address as 2916 Pierce Street, Hollywood, Florida. Hijacker Marwan al-Shiri listed a Lincoln Street address in Hollywood, Florida, 1836 Lincoln Street. I want you to type that in the interactive map. 1836 Lincoln Street. Now what happens when you measure the distance from 1836 Lincoln Street to 2196 Pierce Street? How far away is that when you measure the distance? Well, let's see. It's 0.4 miles away. Different hijacker, different Israeli art student, not related to the ringleader and group that broke into the Tampa offices. Hanan Safradi also lived at another address, 4220 Sheridan Street, Hollywood, Florida. He was the registered owner of the red van. Was that just down the block from 4220 Sheridan Street, which was run by this ringleader of one of the Israeli arts and groups, was another home where Muhammad Atta lived, an apartment at 3389 Sheridan Street. How far away was Muhammad Atta and three hijackers and Hanan Safranti and several other Israeli art students? About 0.539 miles away. Muhammad Atta, on his driver's license, listed his address as 10001 West Atlantic Boulevard, Coral Springs, Florida. And in the DEA leaked memo, another team leader of another group of Israeli art students who served in the Israeli Special Forces, 605th Battalion, a man named Pierre Sigalovitz, listed his address after being taken in by the DEA as 8187 North University Drive, apartment 4129, Tameric, Florida. 
Now what happens when you measure the distance on the interactive map between 10,001 West Atlantic Boulevard and the home of Pierce of Golovitz, another ringleader of a different group of Israeli art students? Well, if you measure the distance bird's eye view, it's only 1.3 miles away. Now, if you type in 8187 into the search box, you should also find Pierce Golovitz's address right there. So 8187 North University Drive in Tamarack, Florida, and 10001 West Atlantic Boulevard in Coral Springs, Florida, where Muhammad Atta listed his address for his driver's license. The distance between those two points is only 1.26 miles away. So again, here is the ringleader of 9-11 seemingly living very, very close in proximity to a ringleader of another Israeli art student group. Why seemingly are these art student groups shadowing the 9-11 hijackers, specifically Muhammad Atta? Does this trend continue? Yes, it does. But you can't find as many you know, eerily close distances between them. As I go on, they'll get farther and further away, but I'll list a couple more. Another Israeli art student named Karen Kuznets lived at 1818 East Oakland Park Boulevard in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Zaya Jara, 9-11 hijacker, lived at 4641 Bougainville Drive, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And Ahmed Alhazni lived at 4532 Bougainville Drive, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Now, these were addresses that they merely listed on documents, but they were not known to have actually lived here. However, this Israeli art student, it was confirmed that they indeed lived at 1818 East Oakland Park Boulevard. Now type in 1818 East Oakland Park Boulevard in the map. Now you see those two green planes right there in the upper right near that Israeli art student icon? Well, those are the addresses of the two 9-11 hijackers that were listed. The distance from them to this other Israeli art student address is starting with Ahmed Al-Hazni, 2.4 miles away, and Zayed Jara being 2.57 miles away in his listed address from another Israeli art student. So I'd say that it's beyond a coincidence when you have one, two, three, Four examples of different locations of different 9-11 hijackers and different locations of different Israeli art students, specifically two of the Israeli art student ringleaders, as described by the DEA, being this close in proximity to Muhammad Atta and other 9-11 hijackers during the time period leading up to 9-11 in such a small time window. Very, very strange. Then again, you have another 9-11 hijacker living less than four miles away from another location of that second team leader of the Israeli art students I just told you about, Pierre Segolovitz. They listed one of their addresses as 13753 Southwest 90th Avenue, Miami, Florida, and Marwan Al-Shiri listed his address as 8025 Southwest 107th Avenue, Miami, Florida. That's less than four miles away. One of the Israeli art students, according to the DEA report, was the son of a two-star Israeli general. Another had experience in explosives. Another had experience in surveillance. And another one served as the bodyguard to the head of the Israeli army. So what am I saying here? Am I trying to insinuate or 
dog whistle that I think Israel was behind the 9-11 attacks or that, you know, that was somehow an Israeli job. No, I'm actually not saying that. I don't personally believe that. I'm just laying out all these facts and how I think irrefutably there is no way that you can brush this off as merely a coincidence that these so-called Israeli art students who are really some kind of cutout operation were this close in proximity to the 9-11 hijackers and seemingly shadowing them for several months at a time. What does it mean? Does it mean they were Mossad? Maybe. But what does it actually mean? Does it mean that they had foreknowledge of 9-11? I mean, maybe. It wasn't just Florida that the Israeli art students shadowed some of the 9-11 hijackers. It was also New Jersey. But what's special about New Jersey? Well, New Jersey was the location of the post office boxes where the four anthrax letters were sent from. A post office box in New Jersey was used to send the four anthrax letters that contained real anthrax spores. Now, there's another incident that I'm going to talk to you about later that involved letters that came from St. Petersburg, Florida, that contained fake anthrax. But letters that contained real anthrax were sent from New Jersey, Trenton, New Jersey. And strangely, Israeli art students, 9-11 hijackers, and those mailboxes are, again, in oddly, eerily close proximity to each other. So then you have to ask the question, are there any connections between the 9-11 hijackers, these Israeli art students, and the anthrax attacks? So now I want you to turn on the anthrax layer of this map. I want you to zoom into, I don't know, let's start with, why don't you go down to Fort Lauderdale area of the map. And you come across, well, actually, I'll have you type this in. In your map, type in Holy Cross Hospital, 4725 North Federal Highway, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Now, a strange thing happened at this hospital. A doctor distinctly remembers treating Ahmed Al-Hazni, one of the future 9-11 hijackers, for what he thought looked like a very weird infected skin lesion that he swears was some kind of cutaneous anthrax infection. The two hijackers visit the hospital. Zayad Jara came with Al-Hazni, didn't have an infection himself. And around the same time this happens in Fort Lauderdale, and as you can see, if you still have the hijacker layer pulled up, you can see that the hijackers live fairly close to the hospital. But what's this below the hospital? Is this an Israeli art student? Yes, it is. It's actually Karen Kuznets, who lives at 1818 East Oakland Park Boulevard that I mentioned earlier. So you already have some, you know, interesting proximity between an Israeli art student address two known hijacker addresses and an incident that could have involved potential anthrax infection involving the hijackers. Hijackers are in 1.5 miles of the hospital, and so is this Israeli art student. But what happens when we actually go to where the crime scene of the anthrax attacks in Florida actually happened, which is Boca Raton? Well, I'm actually going to make you sort of zoom in with Delray Beach in the right-hand corner, Boca Raton on the left-hand corner. Kind of get it so that you're looking at it in the middle. 
Now, on Boca Raton, make sure that you can see three biohazard symbols, anthrax symbols, and then in Delray Beach, make sure you can see one up there so that you have it zoomed out to the right amount. And you should see a great deal of green 9-11 hijacker activity in the vicinity. Now, what is all that stuff? Well, let's start looking at it. So what's all of this stuff here, up here, at the very top of Delray Beach? Well, let's type in Hubar Drugs, H-U-B-A-R Drugs, into the search box, and you should see 400 East Atlantic Avenue, Delray Beach, Florida, pop up. You should also see 2280 West Atlantic Avenue, Delray Beach, pop up. Delray Physician Care Center, Ahmed Al-Nami treated for constipation and stomachache on August 6th. Around a similar time, Mohammed Atta goes to get treatment for a mysterious rash that looked like a chemical burn on his hands and flu-like symptoms like fever and a cough at a drugstore called Huber Drugs. Another hijacker, Ahmed Al-Nami, treated for constipation. What were these three hijackers going to the hospital for? around the same time. That's strange, that they're going to the hospital for various ailments around the same time as leading up to the anthrax attacks. And actually, in rather close proximity to the crime scene of the anthrax attacks. Two of the hospital visits they went to previous to the anthrax attacks are within four miles of the AMI building at 5401 Broken Sound Boulevard, Northwest Boca Raton, Florida. What are all these other hijacker locations here, though? Well, another hijacker, Salem Al-Hazi, listed one of his addresses as 702 Lindell Boulevard, Delray Beach, Florida. That's within three miles away, less than three miles away from the AMI building. Another hijacker, Mohand Al-Shiri, List his address as 755 Dotterell Road, Delray Beach, Florida. That's three miles away from the AMI building. You have a cluster of hijacker activity, basically, around the crime scene of the anthrax attacks. But what are some other weird connections to the hijackers and the anthrax attacks? Well, they tried to rent crop dusters. They tried to do that in Bell Glade, Florida, which is pretty far away from where I was just having you go. You can look up the place they tried to rent crop dusters at 1100 North Main Street, Bell Glade, Florida. And when they tried to do that, they acted so bizarre and suspicious at this crop duster place that the guy actually was thinking of calling the police and he had to tell them to leave and had to run them off the airfield, he said, because Muhammad Atta was trying to climb into the plane and start the airplane without permission. Very strange thing to do for a clandestine operation, I would say. Very strange behavior. Apparently, Muhammad Atta also, during one of his flight training rentals, he rented a, a Cessna and flew it around himself. He spoke to air traffic control on the ground and screamed Allahu Akbar about a half dozen times, which scared the air traffic control crew on the ground. It also just seems really irresponsible, Muhammad Atta, to just walk into such a public space like a hospital like that. And if he was fucking around with any dangerous chemicals having to do with terrorism or whatever the hell was happening, to just make such a big show of it. 
And the pharmacist remembers him acting so bizarre in the pharmacy that he thought that he was like making methamphetamine and he was acting so cagey because he was making drugs. He didn't think terrorism at the time. Before we get into the anthrax attacks any more deeply, just really quickly, I wanted to go over what I just said. There were three different inexplicable hospital visits involving three different 9-11 hijackers, one of which a doctor later said had symptoms that were suspiciously anthrax-like. But let me just give you a little overview of the anthrax attacks in case you were unfamiliar with what they are. Following the 9-11 attacks, there was a series of murders that were caused by weaponized anthrax, Ames strain anthrax, that was developed in some kind of U.S. government lab. It's still not 100% confirmed which lab that was. But the FBI says that this was the work of a lone nut scientist named Bruce Ivins at Fort Detrick, Maryland, U.S. Amarid Lab which is a U.S. government lab that deals with bioweapons. Now, I personally do not believe this to be the case. Even if there's the off chance that Bruce Ivins was involved, which I don't even think that he was, he had help, and there were other people involved in a conspiracy. But essentially what happened was there were two batches of anthrax letters sent out at two separate times. In late September, sometime around September 18th, there were two letters sent out anonymously. One of them was addressed to the New York Post, and another one was addressed to Tom Brokaw. And both of these letters contained weaponized anthrax spores. Then next, two more letters were addressed and sent to Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy. And that caused the Hart Senate office building and the Capitol building to be shut down for some time and had to be decontaminated. It basically amped up the fear levels in the United States to an overwhelming degree. It made terrorism seem like it was going to be now a way of life. And the anthrax letters were not just envelopes filled with white powder. They were also accompanied by actual letters that all said a very similar four-sentence statement, essentially. The letters said such things like, This is anthrax. Death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great. And the letters inside the envelopes had 9-11-01 written at the top. Since the FBI later said that they believe it to be the work of a lone nut American super patriot scientist, as they called him, then this means that by definition, even according to the FBI, this was a false flag attack designed to make it look like it was done by Muslim extremists who were possibly even associated with the 9-11 attacks. Whoever did the anthrax attacks, using this real anthrax in these four letters, wanted to make it look like it was done by a Muslim terrorist. There's no doubt about that. And since all evidence points to it being some kind of inside job of some kind, because it did come from some kind of U.S. government lab. Then how could it have had to have anything to do with the 9-11 hijackers? That doesn't make sense. Well, first of all, I personally don't believe that Bruce Ivins had anything to do with the anthrax attacks. I think he's innocent. Secondly, 
even though I don't think that the 9-11 hijackers did the anthrax attacks, it actually would have been impossible for them to do so, technically speaking, according to the timeline of events, because September 18th was the time the letters were postmarked and sent out. These 9-11 hijackers apparently all killed themselves on these airplanes on the 11th. So seven days later, who sent these letters out? But back to the anthrax attacks really quickly. The anthrax letters themselves, who they were addressed to, didn't kill anybody at those targets. The FBI claims that most of the people murdered by the anthrax was collateral damage because the people that ended up dying were two postal workers, one 89-year-old lady in Connecticut, a hospital worker in New York, and a photo editor in Florida who worked for American Media Inc. He worked for The Sun, one of the several tabloids that American Media Inc. hosted inside this building in Boca Raton, Florida. His name was Robert Stevens. And even though the FBI never found a letter and never found the murder weapon of how anthrax got into the building at the AMI building or how Robert Stevens got infected with anthrax, they determined that this target site, the AMI building, was targeted by the same anthrax murderer or killer who also sent the other four letters. So the FBI essentially kind of glosses over this in essence suggests that five letters were sent, but they only found four of them. Based on the fact that there's no forensic evidence of what the actual murder weapon was that delivered the anthrax inside the AMI building, I think it's safe to say that we ought to question those findings. We also ought to question why the anthrax killer or killers would have changed their pattern and sent a letter to the AMI building in such a strange way compared to the other anthrax letters. The descriptions of the letter received at the AMI building do not match up with the way that the other anthrax letters were written and packaged. In fact, the one sent to the AMI building that apparently had white powder in it, or actually pink powder as they describe it, was written almost like a stalker-like fan letter to Jennifer Lopez. But strangely, there are weird connections to the hijackers 9-11 hijackers, and various key anthrax-related sites at the very first crime scene of the anthrax murders, which is in Boca Raton, Florida, where apparently Robert Stevens gets infected with anthrax. And later, Rudy Giuliani comes in in 2004 with a contract from the new building's owner who buys it for a steal, a mere 40 grand, Rudy Giuliani comes in and announces that he's going to clean up the anthrax in the building with his new company, Bio One. And this company also, obviously, is suspicious. And just keep in mind that Florida, Boca Raton, was the site of the very first anthrax murder. New York City was the site of the very first part of the 9-11 attacks. And Boca Raton, Florida, was the site of the very first part of the 2001 anthrax attacks. But let's get into the hijackers' odd connections with anthrax. And again, I need to clarify here, I am not suggesting that the hijackers, the alleged hijackers in 9-11 had anything to do with the anthrax attacks. What I'm suggesting is that there seems to be very odd close proximity between the two. This cannot be coincidence. It's just too much overlap. 
geographically and timing-wise. The lead editor of the newspaper, The Sun, that was hosted inside the AMI building, the lead editor of it was named Mike Irish. She had a wife named Gloria Irish. Now, before Robert Stevens, the first anthrax victim, dies from anthrax infection on October 5th, who is an AMI photo editor for The Sun, Gloria Irish, the wife of the lead editor of The Sun, is going out for a few days, at least spending a few days with several of the 9-11 hijackers trying to find them apartments in the Boca Raton area. And she ends up actually procuring them two different apartments. She ends up getting them apartments that aren't that close to the AMI building. One of them's four miles away. It's called the Hamlet Country Club. And she also found them an apartment called the Delray Racket Club Condo Association. This one's actually closer to the AMI building, clocking in at three miles away. So you have several different addresses within several miles from the AMI building of where the hijackers were located. You have Gloria Irish, the wife of the lead editor of The Sun, who was the basically the boss of the first anthrax victim who died, showing hijackers apartments and procuring them apartments. Now, the FBI actually looked into the Irishes, Mike and Gloria Irish, to see if they had any connection to 9-11. They seriously did look at them because of this bizarre coincidence. You know, Gloria Irish helped them find apartments. Also, the FBI soon discovered that, that Mike Irish flew planes at the Latana airfield, which is where Kemper Aviation, the CIA-connected flight school is. Now, why is this significant? Because this is also where Muhammad Atta and Marwan al-Shehi came to take flying lessons. So did Mike Irish encounter any of the 9-11 hijackers? Is it just a coincidence that his wife was showing them where to find apartments and that her husband happened to work at the Florida AMI building where the first anthrax attack took place? Could be. But what else do you have going on here? Well, you have activity that's actually not too far away from Robert Stevens' house by the hijackers. That's a little bit creepy. Not just their flying activity, which actually, if you look up where this flight school was, it's 0.891 miles away from Robert Stevens' house. So actually, Muhammad Atta was within 0.89 miles away from Robert Stevens' home, the first anthrax victim, right before the anthrax attacks, like literally months before. You also have other 9-11 hijackers' activities like gym memberships for Marwan al-Shehi and bank withdrawals from Fayez Benihamid, and those are within 1.45 miles away from Robert Stevens' house, and the gym is about two miles away from Robert Stevens' house. Now, I'm not going to say his address. I don't know if his wife, Maureen Stevens, is still living there. But for our listeners, I want you to be respectful and not put this address anywhere online, even though obviously it's not impossible to find public records from Google searches these days. Just be respectful and don't put this address online. I'm not certain if any of the Stevenses are still living there. And just out of respect for their family, obviously they went through a horrible tragedy over this. Just please help me keep this sort of on the down low. If you look it up in the interactive map, you type Robert Stevens. You just type Robert you'll see the two addresses. 
You'll see the old address pre-9-11, which was listed in property records, which he registered a corporation under a software company, which is odd. I, I just learned that Robert Stevens was sort of part of a little startup software company that made, I think, ISA cards for some kind of modem thing. But if you look at where their address was during the anthrax attacks was, you'll see that it's also near the hospital where Robert Stevens was taken, the JFK Medical Center emergency room. But that's strange that Robert Stevens' own home is that close to where all this hijacker activity was. That's strange in and of itself. Now, this might not necessarily mean anything, but I have to mention anyways because it is probably the closest in proximity strange coincidence out of anything on this entire map. Now, I just told you that Gloria and Mike Irish, these people who were dropped as being not suspects anymore, they were looked at briefly by the FBI, and then the FBI said it was a coincidence. Well, it turns out that Gloria and Mike Irish, before 9-11 in the year 2000, you type in Gloria in the map, you'll see an address that pops up on Bamboo Lane. I'm not going to say it out loud. I don't know if they still live there or not now, but you'll see it. You'll see it pop up. Now, here's what's strange. If you turn on the 9-11 hijacker layer, what do you see? Well, you find that right within a 430-foot distance, 430 feet away from their house listed in property records in the year 2000, you find a Texaco payphone that existed in the year 2000 at 2921 South Federal Highway, Boynton Beach, Florida. And someone unknown, they don't know who made this call, made a call to Marwan El Shahi's cell phone sometime near the 9-11 attacks. Someone used this Texaco payphone to call 9-11 hijacker Marwan El Shahi that was only 400 feet away from Gloria and Mike Irish's house. Now, that's a strange coincidence, and that's not one that I've seen reported before, so I'm not sure if I'm the first one to find out how eerily close this was or not. Um, but I'm not going to make this address public. Like I said, uh, private message me or something if you want to see the map. I trust most of our subscribers. But also, there's a known location for where the hijackers were. Two different 9-11 hijackers. Not Marwan al-Shihi, but Walid al-Shiri, Wael al-Shiri, and Satam al-Sukami, all on American Airlines Flight 11, listed the homing inn as their home. Now, apparently, this was a very active location for the 9-11 hijackers. How close was the homing inn to this old, supposedly older property of Mike and Gloria Irish? Well, the homing inn is 1,000 feet away from Mike and Gloria Irish's front door. What about the house that Mike and Gloria Irish owned during 9-11 and the anthrax attacks? Well, you can also look that up on the map if you type Gloria, 6th Avenue. I'm not going to say any more than that on the podcast. And you connect it to the listed address for 9-11 hijackers Mohan Al-Sheri and Ahmed Al-Ghamdi. What you find is 1730 South Federal Highway, Delray Beach, Florida is point. Six, seven, eight miles away from Gloria and Mike Irish's home during the anthrax attacks. So for sure, there was hijacker activity taking place in the home that they lived in less than 0.7 miles away from where they lived. 
Robert Stevens' old home address, if you type Stevens into the thing, you'll see it at Golden Harbor Drive, is oddly in close proximity to some of the hijackers' activity too. It's within 0.83 miles away from a Kinko's where Mahan al Sheri buys something, and it's 0.9 miles away from a gym Y2 Fitness where Saeed Al-Ghamdi buys a two-month gym membership in July. AMI employees also use this gym. But what does this all really mean? What, am I even, what point am I trying to make? The point I'm trying to make is that once you look at this geographically and timeline-wise, all overlaying anthrax 9-11 and the Israeli art students, you just start to see some very bizarre coincidences forming. Now, what are some other strange things that seem related with 9-11 or anthrax? What was one of the anthrax suspects for where the anthrax spores might have come from? What was one of those places? Well, people have said Fort Detrick, people have said Dugway, other people have said it came from private military contractor Battelle. I tend to believe it. I lean towards Battelle. In fact, Maureen Stevens, whose husband died from anthrax infection, also sued Battelle and settled with them. I'm not sure settled in terms of got any money or what happened, but Battelle has a location called Battelle Memorial Institute at 4928 Selfish Drive, Ponce Inlet, Florida. And oddly, there's hijacker activity right within that area as well, just incidentally. Not as close as the hijackers were surrounding that recording studio where inexplicably a totally unrelated, apparently Palestinian rapper came and did an album that people reported on as being by Muhammad Atta, but hijackers actually were hanging out and going to strip clubs at Daytona Beach, which was really close by to Battelle, relatively speaking. Not as close as some of the other things I was saying, but I don't know. All the locations that they were at are about 11 miles away. Walid Al-Sheri listed an address, 690 Dunn Avenue, but it can actually be a typo because in another report it says the address is 1690 Dunn Avenue. You have to be careful too because sometimes the hijackers' names are spelled differently. Sometimes these addresses were written in as typos in certain stories. You have to verify them. So I put both addresses in here because I didn't know which one was the correct one. They're very close to each other. But the Pink Pony Strip Club where some of the 9-11 hijackers hung out and did cocaine is within the same area. And that's within about 11 miles of Battelle Memorial Institute. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail about the activity of the way some of these Israeli art students or Israeli movers behaved in New York City and in New Jersey, where they drew a lot of attention to themselves, saying things to the cops like, you don't need to worry about us, you need to worry about the Palestinians, etc. When you look at a lot of the behaviors of Muhammad Atta and the way the hijackers behaved leading up to 9-11, it does seem like there is a similarity between them and the Israeli art students in the sense that they are part of these little different cells or groups with ringleaders living in all these different little apartments and houses all around various areas of Florida. And at various times, they are drawing attention to themselves. They're actually drawing attention to themselves. Well, what else did the hijackers do to draw attention to themselves? Well, there's actually one really fascinating story about the hijackers drawing attention to themselves, where several of the hijackers, but specifically Muhammad Atta, who made the most noise, 
basically did something similar to an Israeli art student, except instead of trying to go sell art at a USDA federal building, Muhammad Atta and three other hijackers went to basically a USDA loan office leading up to 9-11 and tried to get a $650,000 loan to modify a crop duster. Now, in some ways, this is actually more ridiculous than some of the behavior on display by the Israeli art students in the sense that it was actually frightening behavior. It wasn't a way to act if you were trying to do a clandestine, one of the most sophisticated terrorist attacks of all time. This is from an ABC News story from June 6, 2006. Jolene Bryant, the government employee who worked there who was meeting with Muhammad Atta and these other future hijackers, said that she recalled how Atta sat across from her with his very scary black eyes for more than an hour. His eyes, he had very scary-looking eyes. His eyes were black, she remembered. How could somebody be that evil, be that close to me, and I didn't recognize it? Only after seeing Atta's picture in the newspaper did she realize who the man sitting inches away from her was. I had terrorists in my office and I helped them, she said. I gave them information unknowingly and I'm afraid that there will probably be a next time unless it's stopped from the ground floor level by an American. Now this loan of $650,000 was being asked for to modify a crop duster. What was that being used for? Well, before the anthrax attacks even happened, George W. Bush started talking about crop dusters and anthrax and how the terrorists were trying to rent crop dusters to do an anthrax attack. So could it be that Muhammad Atta was trying to get this loan to do some kind of anthrax attack? And leaving a paper trail so ridiculous that it's like a cartoon? That he's actually trying to get his murder weapon using a U.S. government loan? I mean, that's what it seems like is trying to be shown here, and that's what is so absolutely bizarre about this. Bryant says that in the middle of May 2000, at first he refused to speak with me, said Bryant. Remembering that Atta called her, but a female. Bryant explained that she was the manager, but he still refused to conduct business with her. Ultimately, she said, I told him that if he was interested in getting a farm service industry loan in my service area, that he would need to deal with me. Throughout the interview, he continued to refer to Bryant as, but a female, and Bryant said, he would say it with disgust. During the initial applicant interview, Bryant was taking notes. I wrote his name down and I spelled it A-T-T-A-H. And he told me, no, A-T-T-A is an attaboy. He said he wanted to finance a twin-engine six-passenger aircraft and remove the seats. He said he was an engineer and he wanted to build a chemical tank that would fit inside the aircraft and take up every available square inch of the aircraft except for where the pilot would be sitting. When Brian explained that there was an application process, Otto became very agitated. He thought the loan would be in cash and that he would have no trouble obtaining it to purchase the aircraft. Does this sound like the intelligence level of someone who was the ringleader of the most sophisticated terrorist attack of all time? The article continues, He also remarked about the lack of security in the building, pointing specifically to a safe behind Bryant's desk. He asked me, 
What would prevent him from going behind my desk and cutting my throat and making off with the millions of dollars in that safe? Said Bryant, who explained that there was no money in the safe because loans were never given in cash, and also that she was trained in karate. He wanted to know how, once he became settled down in the United States, how he could take that kind of training. So apparently, after threatening her life and her saying that she knew karate as some kind of like panic response, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I want to know how to learn karate, too. Like, can you help me out? I mean, this guy sounds like he's a fucking crazy person trying to make as much noise as possible short of actually getting like arrested at the USDA offices. You could also look this up on the map if you want. It's If you look up USDA, I found the location of where he ventured to get this loan. It's not really geographically that interesting, though, where it is. Jolene Bryant turned him down for the loan because, as a non-U.S. citizen, he did not meet the basic eligibility requirements. And this is the weird claim in the ABC News thing. It almost makes the claim that Abu Zabaida, the guy who basically was tortured many, many times by U.S. authorities, says that the plan switched from hijacking passenger jets after they couldn't get the loan for this crop duster. Before leaving Bryant's office, Atta became fixated with an aerial photo of Washington that was hanging on her office wall. He just said that it was one of the prettiest, the best he'd ever seen of Washington. She said, remembering that he was impressed with the panoramic view and that it captured all the monuments and buildings in one photograph, pointing specifically to the Pentagon and the White House. He pulled out a wad of cash, she said, and started throwing money on my desk. He wanted the picture really bad. Brian indicated that the picture was not for sale, and he threw more money down. His look on his face became very bitter at this point, Bryant remembers. I believe he said, how would America like it if another country destroyed that city and some of the monuments in it, like the cities in his country, had been destroyed? Atta also expressed an interest in visiting New York, specifically the World Trade Center, and asked Bryant about security there. He inquired about other American cities, including Phoenix, Los Angeles, Seattle, and Chicago. Atta also talked about random things like how the Dallas Cowboys football stadium was America's team and that the stadium had a, quote, hole in the roof. He also talked about life in his country, she said, whatever that means. His country is Egypt, by the way. He mentioned Al-Qaeda. He mentioned Osama bin Laden. I didn't know who Osama bin Laden was, Bryant said. He could have been a character on Star Wars for all I knew. He boasted about the role they would play one day. He said this man would someday be known as the world's greatest leader. Then Bryant and Otto shook hands on his way out. And she said, I told him I wished him luck with his endeavor. How could I have known? She attributes all his strange behavior not to the fact that he was some crazy person trying to draw attention to himself on purpose, but that... He came from a violent country compared to the United States, and she was trying to help him make the, quote, cultural leap. Later, he came in again to deal with her, but this time she describes wearing a disguise with glasses, but he still gave his same name. And this time he came in with Marwan al-Shehi, his nephew. And then, of course, this is from the time of you know, see something, say something, like everybody thinking they were terrorist detectives because of the level of, like, ridiculous reptile brain fear 
She ends the interview with ABC News by saying, if they watch this interview and see the type of questions it ought to ask me on my first encounter, and then someone walks into another American's office and then behaves in the same manner, then perhaps they will recognize a terrorist and perhaps they will pick up the phone and make the call that I didn't make. I mean, yeah, that's pretty wild that someone threatened to go behind your desk and slit your throat and steal money out of your safe. And you didn't like even write it. You didn't tell like a manager, like reported to your superiors at all. That is really, really odd. And it's also really odd how in 2002, they were claiming that this, the original plan was something involving a crop duster, but then it got switched because the loan fell through. So if this was some elaborate hatch plan by, by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and bin Laden sponsoring this and all this stuff, why would they try to get a loan from the U.S. government? I mean, that just seems like cartoonish. Could they really not supply a half a million dollars for whatever this was that they needed? $650,000? It just doesn't make any fucking sense. And it makes Lee Harvey Oswald's behavior, where he drew attention to himself, passing out leaflets, appearing on local public access TV, debating with a Cuban man, it makes that behavior seem very low-key in comparison. So if Oswald was just a patsy, what was Muhammad Atta? Did he just get really, really lucky and pull off this amazing feat of a terrorist attack while just being such a bumbling fucking fool at the same time? I mean, the stuff he does makes the stuff in the movie Four Lions actually look realistic. I mean, it, it is very, very, very confounding. But back to the thing I told you at the very beginning is Muhammad Atta also spent time in a place on Longboat Key, which is kind of an obscure, upscale, resorty area near Sarasota, near Venice. And Longboat Key is actually the unpublicized location of where George W. Bush was staying that evening. Or sorry, staying the evening before 9-11. Now, if you look on the map, you click on the hijackers' locations and George W. Bush activities, you click on that layer, and you go all the way to the left-hand side of Florida near Sarasota, you can see where George W. Bush was staying. He was staying at the Colony Beach and Tennis Resort in Florida, and Muhammad Atta liked to hang out with a bunch of the other hijackers at the Holiday Inn on Longboat Key, which is at 4949 Gulf of Mexico Drive, Longboat Key. Bush was staying at 1620 Gulf of Mexico Drive. Now, how far away is that? It's about 4.4 miles away. And Muhammad Atta happened to be having drinks here on September the 7th, 2001. Researcher Gumby from the last episode actually gave me that clue. Now, besides the new information I believe I provided in this podcast, along with the accompanying interactive map, it shows the eerie proximity between some of the hijackers and AMI employee Mike Irish, where the first anthrax murder took place. I haven't really shown you anything as compelling as that. That's within several hundred feet. You know, that's within less than 0.3 miles, like some of those very first Israeli art student hijacker connections, seemingly shadowing attempts that I gave you earlier. But I did discover one more that's pretty compelling. So I did sort of gloss over the fact that there were rich Saudis that were the family 
of the Gawazis. Now, the Gawazis were very well-connected Saudis that knew the royal family. They had pictures with George W. Bush displayed on their business websites. They had property in Arlington, Virginia. They seemingly seem connected to intelligence in the U.S. and maybe even Saudi royalty. They knew the Saudi prince's nephew. Now, earlier I told you that a lot of the hijackers were known to have visited the property of one of their children, the Alhijis, a married couple, Abdulaziz Alhiji and Anud Alhiji, who lived at 4224 Escondido Circle, Sarasota, Florida. That address is everywhere. I'm not hesitant to give that out on this podcast. Now, you may have heard this address and that this was a hub for hijackers because of the 28 pages release, and Bob Graham likes to talk about this all the time. Well, yeah, this is probably a big piece of the puzzle. It's definitely sus. It definitely seems like they fled the country and just moved out extremely quickly after 9-11, very suspiciously and mysteriously. Yet the FBI seems like they didn't really go after them, which is also suspicious. But that proximity to that and, you know, the other hijackers' locations, Muhammad Atta, you know, listed a, an address not too far away from it. I'll say he listed an address that's publicly available online, 516 Laurel Road, Nakamas, Florida. The Escondido Drive address, I just gave you 4224 Escondido Drive, Sarasota. Muhammad Atta has a location of one of his addresses listed seven and a half miles away from there. So that's not that compelling. But we know that they did visit there often. But again, that doesn't seem within close proximity to where Bush was around the Sarasota area on 9-11 or where he was staying on Longboat. Well, that's actually incorrect. As I found an address that belonged to the Gawazis that is not listed on most of the news stories or news reports about this. And it's a property that happens to be And you can actually type this on your map. I'm not going to say it on the podcast because I have not seen this address published before in relation to them. But if you type in G-H-A-Z-Z-A-W-I, if you type this in on the map, you'll see three items pop up if you have the hijacker layer activated. Now, what you're looking for is one that pops up that says Longboat Key. This is a property that belongs to them in Longboat Key. Now, I'm not sure 100% if they were living here at the time that Bush visited. However, this is confirmed them. I've cross-referenced it enough times to know that this was one of their properties. Now, how close was this to where Bush was staying on the evening of 9-11? This is, again, a Saudi royal family-connected, rich Saudi family that has children that were having 9-11 hijackers visiting their home. This is their main property on Longboat Key. Now, if you pull both of these up on the map, you can measure it yourself, but I'll just tell you on the podcast, where Bush was staying on Longboat Key at the Colony Beach and Tennis Resort, 1620 Gulf of Mexico Drive on Longboat Key, is only 0.3 miles away from the house that belongs to this 9-11 hijacker-related family. Because I just kind of got obsessed with finding properties and addresses related to these people 
that weren't out there already, and this is what I found. This needs to be looked at closer, this connection between Bush, specifically Bush, and this Saudi family, I think. Very important. But Bush's activity and behavior on 9-11 is very odd, too, and it does appear that either a group of potential Israeli art students or people related to the 9-11 hijackers or unrelated to both that coincidentally behaved like them appeared at Bush's resort while he was on a morning jog at around 6 in the morning. The Colony Beach and Tennis Resort in Florida where Bush was staying with Andy Card, Mike Morell, Carl Rove, Ari Fleischer, Dave Wilkinson, Brian Bravo, Gordon Justice. Someone approaches the Secret Service detail that's standing outside on guard outside the resort and says that they have a scheduled interview with George W. Bush. And they actually drop the name of one of the Secret Service agents who was in Bush's detail that day as a person that, oh yeah, we have an interview with President Bush. Can you go get so-and-so from the Secret Service? This is who we talked to for this time. Now, the only description of these men is that they were several men of Middle Eastern descent in a van. Now, the police who stopped some of the Israelis in New Jersey believed that they were actually stopping like Middle Eastern men, like Arabs at first, until they realized these men were Israeli. So this concept of Middle Eastern looking men, men who appeared to be Middle Eastern, we also must assume that it could also be a group of men who happen to be Israeli or a part of these Israeli art students that we also know drove vans. And this is from a, a really good Paul Thompson, Alan Wood piece uh, that was published on History Commons called An Interesting Day, President Bush's Movements and Actions on 9-11. I still think Paul Thompson is one of the best 9-11 researchers there is. Apparently, Jeb Bush had dinner with Bush George W. Bush. It's filled with a lot of detail. It says that, that a Sudanese native living in Sarasota named Zanlabadin Omer told the local police that night that someone he knew who had made violent threats against Bush was in town, and Omar was worried about Bush's safety. The man was identified only as Gandhi. A police report states the Secret Service was informed immediately. So after this dinner with Jeb, Bush goes to bed around 10 p.m., it's reported in the Washington Post that surface-to-air missiles are placed on the roof of the resort. Well, that seems like a rather drastic move for just some random, barely credible threat that was told to the Secret Service. An airborne warning and control systems AWACS plane circled high overhead. Paul Thompson, though, specifies that it's not clear if this was type of protection that was standard for the president or whether security was increased because of the threats. Bush awoke a little before 6 a.m. on September 11th, pulled on shorts and an old t-shirt, and laced up his running shoes. At 6.30, Bush, a reporter friend, and his Secret Service crew took a four-mile jog in the half-light of dawn around a golf course nearby. At about the same time Bush was getting ready for his jog, a van carrying several Middle Eastern men pulled up to the colony's guard station. The men said they were a television news crew with a scheduled poolside interview with the president. They asked for a certain Secret Service agent by name. The message was relayed to a Secret Service agent inside the resort, 
hadn't heard of the agent mentioned or plans for the interview, he told the men to contact the president's public relations office and the van turned away. Then Paul Thompson says that the Secret Service may have foiled an assassination attempt. Two days earlier, Ahmed Shah Massoud, leader of Afghanistan's Northern Alliance, had been murdered by a similar ruse. Two North African men posing as journalists had been requesting an interview since late August. As it began, a bomb hidden in the video camera exploded. Nearly three hours after the incident at the colony, Another Longboat Key resident reported a run-in with possibly the same men at about 8.50 when reports of the first world trade crash were first broadcast while standing on the Sarasota Bay front waiting for the presidential motorcade to pass by. This man saw two Middle Eastern men in a dilapidated van screaming out the windows, down with Bush. Later, on the morning of September 11th, the Secret Service ended up questioning three Sudanese men who were in connection with the original Secret Service threat about a so-called man named Gandhi, who was part of the Sudanese People's Liberation Army, a group fighting against the fundamentalist Muslim government in Sudan. After his jog, Bush showered, then sat down for his daily intelligence briefing around 8 a.m. The president's briefing appears to have included some reference to the heightened terrorist risk reported throughout the summer, but contained nothing specific, severe or imminent enough to necessitate a call to Condoleezza Rice. While Bush was being briefed, the planes that would be hijacked began taking off. At approximately 8.13, it's unclear if Bush leaves the school at 8.30 or 8.39, says Paul Thompson, but that the journey would have been about nine miles away. You can actually check this on the map if you want. I have it on here from Longboat Key Colony Beach and Tennis Resort, Florida, to Booker T. Elementary, if you click on the bush layer, wait, I suppose he could have flown there. I don't see why not. Technically speaking, if a president wanted to, he could fly by helicopter. It would have been far quicker. I'm not sure how quickly they could have whipped something up like that for him. But by air, we're talking less than five miles away. By driving, it's, it's a lot longer. It, it is about nine miles away. You can see that on the map. So that might be peculiar, might not be. I, I don't really know. Continuing to read Paul Thompson's article here. Paul Thompson gets really specific right here. He says, when did Bush first learn of the attack? Because there's a huge amount of contradictions in why NORAD delayed for so long. NORAD changed their timelines. Different people changed their timelines. We could go by the Betty Ong phone call timeline. But he says, why does it matter when Bush left the resort and arrived at the school? Because this is the crucial time when Bush was first told or should have been told of the attacks. Official accounts, including the words of Bush himself, say Bush was first told of what was happening in New York City after he arrived at the school. However, this statement does not stand up to scrutiny. There are at least four reports that Bush was told of the first crash before he arrived at the school. And this is where it gets really weird, as Paul Thompson is basically saying that According to a lot of the reports, Bush didn't hear about the planes crashing until like 10 minutes after it had been on the news, which also just does not make sense. He says, given all this, how could Bush have remained ignorant? Could he have been out of the loop because he was in the car? No. The previous night, Colony Resort Manager Katie Clauber Mullen toured the presidential limousine and marveled at all the phones and electronic equipment. Carl Rove on 9-11, and remember, this was 
way before like cell phone emailing, like Blackberries were common, he was using like a wireless email device on 9-11. So there seems to be ample opportunity to alert Bush, is what Paul Thompson is saying. Then he continues, if Bush wasn't told in the limousine, he certainly was told immediately after he got out of it. She claims that she told Bush as soon as he exited the limousine that a plane had hit the World Trade Center. Other accounts claim that Andrew Card actually came up to him while he was starting to shake hands right outside of the school. This is actually what Bush himself claims. He says that Andy Card told him, here's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be you're going to meet so-and-so, such-and-such. Then Andy Card said, by the way, an aircraft flew into the World Trade Center. And this was another report from the Daily Mail claiming that Bush said that Rove was the one who approached him. And then Bush says, what a horrible accident. Maybe the pilot had a heart attack. And then according to the Washington Post and MSNBC, this is weird, is that he remembers Rove saying it appeared to be an accident involving a small twin-engine plane, which that was never reported by like any of the wire stories. It just gets really, really contradictory here, and this is actually problematic in of itself. Why can't we get a clear account of actually what order of events happened with Bush? Why can't we? Has there been obfuscation sort of flooded out there, noise flooded out there, like snowstorm style, to just kind of make it hard to figure this out? Why is this so hard? Even someone at the school, the principal, Gwen Toes Riggle, remembers Bush immediately getting out of the limousine, approaching her and saying that he needed to take a phone call right away before talking to anyone. And that's presumably when he talked to Condi Rice, as if he already knew about the plane flying into the World Trade Center before he gets out of the limousine. So why is Andy Card saying that he's the one who told Bush afterwards? Why is Bush claiming that? Why is Ari Fleischer claiming that? Why is uh, Bush claiming that Carl Rove told him that when he gets out of the limo? It's, it's almost like there's five or six different versions of the story. Also, Paul Thompson remarks on Bush's confused recollection. He says it only complicates the picture. Less than two months after the attacks, Bush made the preposterous claim that he had watched the first attack as it happened on live television. And he actually makes a point here to say this is the seventh different account of how Bush learned about the first crash. There was no film footage of the first attack until at least the following day, and Bush didn't have access to a television until 15 or so minutes later. Unfortunately, Bush has never been asked, not even once, to explain these statements. His memory not only contradicts every single media report, it also contradicts what he said that evening. In his speech to the nation that evening, Bush said, immediately following the first attack, I implemented our government's emergency response plans. It's not known what these emergency response plans were because neither Bush nor anyone in his administration mentioned this immediate response again. Implementing emergency response plans seems to completely contradict Bush's, by the way, recollection of a small airplane accident. Now, here is where I just need to step in. And Abby mentioned this, and she's emphasized this on several of the 9-11 episodes we've done, is that if Bush already knew of a single plane hitting the World Trade Center, as he's on the way to the school, or even as he's getting out of the motorcade to walk into the school. Either way, it should have immediately hit him that this was the warnings that he had been reading about, about bin Laden or Muslim extremists determined to use hijacked planes as weapons to fly into World Trade Center 
and other landmarks. This was in his actual presidential daily briefings. It said things this specific. So to say that, you know, maybe he, let's say, okay, let's give him him the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that he was completely out of it, didn't make the connection at all, totally in another world thinking about other things, didn't make the connection to the plane hitting the World Trade Center that it was immediately this warning he'd been hearing about. Let's assume that. Let's play into his version of events a little bit, that he just thought it was weird and, oh my God, this this is a bad pilot that crashed the plane. Then why didn't anyone else in his team whisk him away and, and just make the executive decision to put the Secret Service in effect to just whisk him out of there immediately and be like, no, 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 this is, you know, this is pretty close to the warnings we've been getting. Secret Service must have already known about some of these warnings, especially if Middle Eastern men came and acted very suspicious that morning at his resort. And also if there was a threat made to the Secret Service from another Sudanese man the night before. I mean, what is the likelihood that the Secret Service would just let all this fly? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, you could put all the blame on Bush. Obviously, Bush is lying. I mean, he's lying about something here. He must have connected that it was this warning. So why didn't the Secret Service act? Why didn't they just say immediately, we need to cancel the event and go back to some kind of emergency command center or regroup somewhere else with this part of the cabinet? Why did they even let Bush proceed with the Booker T Elementary School visit at that point? That's very confusing. Now, it also makes me think that either Bush knew he was safe for some reason. Let's say that he did click in his mind that this warning came through. Did he think this was some kind of drill? Did he know enough in advance about the attacks and know that he was going to be safe, even though technically he was fully exposed, basically made look like a sitting duck being placed in front of school children in the middle of like one of the worst attacks on U.S. history? Before that, did he think, did he, when the first plane hit, did he think he was going to be safe? And then maybe when the second plane hit, did it set in that maybe someone had set him up? Or did it, did it click in him that the Secret Service didn't whisk him away and that they just let him sit there? And then he had this sort of frozen reaction. And I'm not going to bother to speculate on exactly what was going on in his head. I don't, let's say if Bush was in on 9-11 somehow, I don't think he was fully in the loop. And I think that was a genuine reaction of panic, fear, confusion. So this is also weird too, is that Andy Card, you know, we'd like to believe that he walked in immediately to tell Bush the news of the second plane hitting the World Trade Center, which would have been undeniable at that point for Bush to think that this was an accident that point, you know it's deliberate, you know it's an attack. So regardless, him sitting there for an extra 11 minutes is weird and, and definitely needs to be answered for. Nobody's ever asked him about it, which is just bizarre to think that's how acquiescent the press was back then. Now what's weird is apparently Andy Card says that he wanted to wait until there was a pause in the reading for him to deliver the news to the president. Some say that he delivered the news to the president 
at 9.05. And keep in mind, this is two minutes after the second plane hits. Some say 9.07. I mean, these are in official media reports. ABC News, Washington Post says 9.07. So can you imagine the Secret Service deciding to wait four minutes before telling the President of the United States this was actually an attack happening like on the country? I mean, that's that in of itself is ludicrous. And if I was Bush... And if I wasn't somehow already fully in the loop of some kind of inside job terrorist attack, then I knew I was perfectly safe and then all these things were just going to happen around me and I would be safe. Unless that was my position, I would immediately think that there was some kind of coup or get it into my head, get really paranoid all of a sudden and think, holy shit, am I being set up here? Bush obviously didn't know that they waited four minutes but something on his face makes it seem like he's scared. And then what's weird is the Secret Service didn't override him sitting there for 11 minutes. You know, they say, well, they didn't want to scare the children. Bush says he didn't run out of there because he didn't want to scare the children. I'm not going to get into the weeds of, you know, believing that bullshit. It's weird that he stayed there and waited for that long. But he says... I am very aware of the cameras. I'm trying to absorb that knowledge. I have nobody to talk to. I'm sitting in the midst of a classroom with little kids listening to a children's story, and I realize I'm the commander-in-chief, and the country has just come under attack. We're at war, and somebody has dared attack us, and we're going to do something about it. I realized I was in a unique setting to receive a message that somebody attacked us. It became evident that we were, you know, that the world had changed. So Paul Thompson says, so what did the commander-in-chief do with the knowledge that the U.S. was under attack? He did nothing. He did not say one word. He did not ask Card any questions. He did not give any orders. He did not know who or which country was attacking, whether there would be more attacks, what military plans have been taken, what military action should be taken. Indeed, he knew virtually nothing about what was going on outside the room. He just sat there. Bush later recalled there was no time for discussion or anything. For some reason, Secret Service agents did not bustle him away, one newspaper said. Military pilots must, quote, have permission from the White House because only the president has the authority to shoot down a civilian aircraft. But if retaliatory strikes were needed, Bush was not available. See, this does not make any sense. Simultaneously, you have to understand Secret Service agents busted in and carried Cheney away to a secure location. According to, a Sarasota, according to a Sarasota County Sheriff named Bill Balkwill, he distinctly remembers a Marine who was accompanying George W. Bush on his trip who was there to carry Bush's phone, saying right after the second plane hit, we're out of here. Can you get everyone ready? And Paul Thompson says, but he must have been overruled by someone because Bush never left and the Secret Service did not act. Once he was out of the classroom, did Bush immediately leave Booker? No. He stayed in the adjacent room with his staff, calling Vice President Cheney and Rice and preparing a speech. Incredibly, even as uncertain information began to surface, Bush was allowed to make his remarks at 9.30, exactly the time and place stated on his advance schedule. There was nothing at this point that would have stopped someone from crashing a plane into Booker T. Elementary. It had already been made a public spot for the president to appear on 9-7. So at this point, any of the 9-11 hijackers 
could have done this. In fact, it seemed like Mohammed Atta was in very close proximity to Longboat Key, where Bush would be staying on 9-7, the day where Booker T. Elementary was announced as one of the president's stops. Why hasn't Bush's security staff been criticized for their completely inexplicable decision to stay at the school? And why didn't Bush's concern for the children extend to not making them and the rest of the 200 or so people at the school terrorist targets? Five minutes later, according to most of the reports, Bush's motorcade was ready to take him to the Sarasota airport where Air Force One was waiting to fly out. At 9.37, Flight 77 crashes into the Pentagon. Now, this is a slight contradiction because apparently Bush got a telephone call just as his motorcade was arriving to the airport around 9.40. And they actually got right up to Air Force One by 9.43. So apparently Bush was called in his limousine and notified of the plane hitting the Pentagon. Apparently he could not receive phone calls before to be notified of the plane hitting the Pentagon originally, or so he claimed. Now this is where things get really confusing because, as I mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast, I don't necessarily care for him as a person, but Webster Tarpley has an interesting theory in his book, Synthetic Terror. That's quite a far out theory, but it is a theory that I believe needs to be factored in to some extent, that he believes that President Bush was a target and that was made to feel under threat, but not by the 9-11 hijackers themselves or the supposed Islamic terrorists or bin Laden, but made to feel under threat by whoever was actually behind the attacks. And Webster Tarpley's theory is that it was someone in the U.S. government, a so-called invisible government that was doing some kind of coup d'etat, but making their presence known that they were doing a coup d'etat on the U.S. government. That's a very far-out theory, but I do think there are elements to that theory that are interesting. Now, one element is Bush's extremely cavalier attitude up until all this time has passed, from getting a th- basically a threat on his life that resembled the assassination against the leader of the Northern Alliance in Afghanistan that had happened a day earlier, that was already all over the news, having this terrorist attack happen after he knew that he got the warnings and definitely connected it at this point that It was based on the same warnings that he had gotten. It was a very similarly executed event to the specific presidential daily briefings that he got. So why was he so cavalier? It did seem like Bush was at least cavalier in the sense that he didn't think that he was under threat or that the school was under threat and that no one around him felt concerned enough to think that they were under threat just to basically cancel the school event and get the hell out of there. It said lingering there for lingering there for over 40 minutes at the school. They didn't have to go to the school at all. Now, who arranged Bush to be in Florida in this eerily 9-11-centric area of the United States where a lot of the, or most of the 9-11 planning, it seems like, took place? And some of it actually took place in the Sarasota and Venice area, which is near where Bush was. Who set Bush's schedule up to be here? Who wanted him to be on television or to be in the presence of school children so exposed right when that was going to happen. Because it does seem like at a certain point, Bush did genuinely freeze and not know what to do psychologically. What was he actually thinking at that moment? Now, it doesn't seem like he was very concerned for his own life, 
Because if he was, he would have hidden out and not done the press conference after that. So after that freezing moment, he somehow became cavalier again. His demeanor seems fairly cavalier during the speech. And this idea that Cheney and Condoleezza Rice helped him write the speech in real time with his staff in the back room. I mean, it seems like a, a speech that had been written many days before that. I know that sounds pretty conspiratorial and crazy. But it just seems like a very composed Bush. Surprisingly composed for what had just happened compared to how rattled he had just looked in the classroom. Now, Paul Thompson's article just gets really weird because when they get to the airport, there's no evidence whatsoever, and there's never been any press who have asked Bush specifically, when you left the school, who were you discussing shoot-down orders with? Had you discussed potential shoot-down orders of other potentially hijacked planes that were still in the air after you had time to compose yourself and leave the school. Because, yeah, you can make every excuse in the world that, you know, he didn't want to do it for the children or whatever. For some reason, the press did not press him on that at all. They never questioned him on his nonsensical statements about seeing the first plane crash. But this is when he should have been doing everything to try to respond on his way to Air Force One or at least while waiting for Air Force One to take off. So what happens on the way to Air Force One? Now, it's been reported that Bush somehow made a call to Cheney to ground all the airplanes during this sort of scurry to the airport. There is no evidence at all to suggest that Bush had by this point made even one decision relevant to his security or that of the country. Now, that is such a strange fact. Why is that? Why does it seem like Bush is just being led around without being concerned for his own life? Even though there were no, you know, apparent targets known in Florida where the planes were going or no targets had been hit so far, you would think that at the very least there might be jets being scrambled to accompany Air Force One. And Paul Thomas goes into the strangeness of why this wasn't being done and why there were no jets scrambled even just to go to the school. Like just, you know, going above Bush's head, military protocols to protect the president. Because... As he says, Homestead Air Station and Tyndall Air Station both had a five-minute ability to reach Sarasota with fighter jets. That's how fast the fighter jets could have gone to reach them. Now, if we look at the map, click on the tab U.S. Military layer, brings up a new layer onto the map. On the U.S. Military layer, click on Tyndall Air Force Base, and you can see where that one is in relationship to where Bush was. It looks pretty far. It is a few hundred miles away, maybe 200 or so miles away. But with a fighter jet, you could have reached it, you know, within the time it would take to go to the airport from the time the second tower was hit. There would have been plenty of time. Now, where was Homestead? Homestead was about, if we measure it, it was less than 200 miles away. So Homestead was even closer, and both of them, Paul Thompson is saying, should have been able to deploy fighter jets. Now, the reason why fighter jets being deployed would have been really necessary, and, you know, maybe let's say they got delayed, they didn't know what to do, the president was confused. Let's add in some stupid excuses there. 
Why didn't they even accompany Air Force One when it eventually took off and flew? Why did Air Force One just get up in the air without any uh, accompaniment by fighter jets? You would think that that would have happened by default because Air Force One, according to many, many news reports, got what, again, seemed like some kind of internal or miscommunicated internal Secret Service warning. This is where it becomes very confusing. That was some kind of internally broadcast Secret Service threat using the code word of ANGEL for Air Force One, saying ANGEL is next. And according to Tarpley and some variations of this theory, that that was at that point that people in the Secret Service thought that the 9-11 plotters who had done these other attacks in New York and on the Pentagon had somehow gotten internally in the loop of the Secret Service, had sent out a threat, and was now somehow going to try to kill the President of the United States and take down Air Force One, somehow. Now, it wasn't just that they got a terror threat that Air Force One was next, another potential target. It was that they thought that someone was sending an internal threat. Now, that kind of sounds similar to what happened at Bush's resort, where a van of men pulled up and gave the name of a Secret Service agent acting like they had inside information and has a similar flavor to it. But later on, the story got changed that there was a miscommunication that Air Force One was next and that it was just sort of a game of telephone miscommunication where it really wasn't next and it actually didn't really happen. Um, it got misreported on. But what's strange is it was sort of put out there it seemingly was leaked out there by the Bush administration to try to cover for the fact that Bush didn't return to Washington, D.C. for 10 hours and was like completely incommunicado and like in the air most of the time. He barely made any appearances on the day of 9-11. Carl Rove actually said, it was reported, just minutes after Bush left Booker Elementary, they also made it clear they wanted to get us up quickly and they wanted to get us to a high altitude because there had been a specific threat made to Air Force One. A, a declaration that Air Force One was a target and said in a way that they called it credible. Now, this is where it gets weird. Witnesses described seeing the plane taking off like a rocket, like a plane that they've never seen take off that fast before. Now, later, the official story seems to have changed this idea that some Secret Service members freaked out and got paranoid thinking they'd seen a man with a gun at the end of the runway, and that's why they took off like that, not because of the angel is next Air Force One threat. Now, Paul Thompson continues in his article, going nowhere as threats increase. Shortly after takeoff, Cheney apparently informed Bush of a credible threat to Air Force One. He had barely settled into his seat on Air Force One when he got the news that terrorists apparently set their sights on the plane. The Secret Service had received an anonymous call. Air Force One is next. The caller allegedly knew the agency's code words relating to Air Force One procedures. Details suggest this threat was not the same as the earlier one, but it's hard to know for sure. Now, there's some confusion there of which threat came in what order. Now, I would trust Paul Thompson's research more implicitly than almost anybody else's because he's very, very thorough and on the ball in this. So he's suggesting that it's actually a second threat is the one where someone uses the Secret Service code word, not the first threat. Journalists were on Air Force One at this point, and some of them reported at around 10.30 a.m. they could just tell that the plane was 
basically idling in the air. It was circling. And it was around this same time that Cheney apparently calls Bush and tells him not to come back to D.C. again because there's another threat to, Ar to Air Force One. Now, the plane was supposed to go back to Washington directly at that point, but then flies to Louisiana instead. 20 minutes later, there is now a fourth threat to Air Force One that is relayed to President Bush. The pilot, Colonel Mark Tillman of Air Force One, said that he was warned that a suspect airliner was dead ahead. Coming out of Sarasota, there was one call that said there was an airliner off our nose that they did not have contact with. Tillman took evasive action, pulling his plane even higher above normal traffic. The report was apparently a false alarm, but it shows the folly of having Bush fly without a fighter escort. So back to my original point, this is why it's so strange that no fighter escorts still were there. This is literally the fourth threat to Air Force One. They've sent fighter escorts in the air before when planes simply do not respond to air traffic control for long enough because they think that the pilot may have passed out and it's going to crash. So they want to, you know, go look inside the cockpit window to make sure the pilot's not passed out. Now, Paul Thompson has an interesting take on this that I don't know if I necessarily agree with. He says, the most obviously bogus threat, the mole knowing secret codes, came from Cheney in a pivotal moment in his argument with Bush over where Bush should go. But were the other threats, for instance, the one made before Air Force One even took off or the airline suspected of crashing into Air Force One also bogus? And the story is, you know, constantly changing. But one interesting thing is there's a contradictory report that says that F-16 fighters started accompanying Air Force One, reported in the Telegraph, by 10 a.m. from a base near Jacksonville, Florida. But a month after that, it was reported in the Washington Post that in the phone call with Cheney at 10.32, he told Bush that it would take another 40 to 90 minutes to get fighters up to escort Air Force One. Paul Thompson estimates that it appears that fighters arrived sometime between 11 and 11.30. Now, Paul Thompson says, This clearly goes beyond mere incompetence, yet no newspaper article has ever raised the issue. Was Cheney able to prevent the fighters from reaching Air Force One, perhaps to convince Bush not to return to Washington? If so, why? Did Cheney assume or know that Bush was in no real danger? Like so many other questions surrounding 9-11, we do not know. Now, it would be really interesting to figure out what kind of press corps was chosen that day. Did someone selectively choose the most, like, loyal and unquestioning types of reporters to accompany Bush on this trip? Because why didn't more reporters ask questions about this? I mean, they would have felt probably in danger too, right? Didn't they learn by proxy that... There were these threats coming in. Didn't they feel the plane taking evasive action? Weren't they confused about the lack of Secret Service fighter escorts? Weren't they alarmed when the plane took off like a rocket? Why didn't more of them talk about this missing piece of Bush's experience in the 9-11 historical record? Now, this is fascinating. The press was presumably with Bush when he lands at Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana. He finally leaves Florida shortly after 12.30 p.m. But Paul Thompson makes the point to say there was quite a difference in the protection afforded Bush at Barksdale and what was in Sarasota. Bush was left unprotected at a known location in Sarasota for nearly 30 minutes. At Barksdale, a location that was at the time unknown, Congressman Dan Miller was amazed at the armored equipment and soldiers with automatic weapons that immediately surrounded the place. 
Reporters and others remained under strict orders not to give out their location. So the drastic change in the Secret Service and security protocol from Booker T. Elementary to now, why, why this drastic change? And Paul Thompson also says, ironically, the landing to Barksdale Air Force Base came only a short time after Bush's plane was finally protected by fighters. And he also makes an interesting point in here that apparently the official reason for landing at Barksdale was that Bush felt it necessary to make a further statement about 9-11. I mean, that's odd because Bush's statement at Barksdale Air Force Base almost no one has ever seen. And that's because it is a very weird energy Bush speech. He seems very rattled. For the first time all day, instead of seeming really cavalier, he seems very rattled. Maybe just as rattled as he was when he froze in that classroom. But maybe even more so. Paul Thompson says that he apparently wrote this speech on a napkin and taped it, pre-recorded it. It's not said if he pre-recorded it in front of the press, but he taped it around 12.30, and it aired on television around 1.20. Now, that's unusual, strange. Did he need to do multiple takes of this speech? Because the take that was recorded and released seems really bad. Uh, he seems really rattled, and it seems like it starts sort of mid-speech, like he had already said something before it started. doesn't seem as if he's starting a paragraph. seems like he's just starting a sentence in a larger paragraph. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. He also changes his language about what just happened. Instead of referring to this as terrorism or sort of leaning into that like he did at Booker T. Elementary with his more seemingly planned out speech, in this one he just says that they will hunt down whoever did this and they are a faceless coward. They're testing America's resolve. Now, what does he mean by that? Why was Bush so seemingly unconcerned about his own safety and now suddenly believed that he was genuinely under threat? Apparently, Cheney and Bush were arguing for hours on the phone. He kept demanding that he get clearance to come back to Washington. And there kept being people like Cheney, Karl Rove, even Ari Fleischer, Others who would tell him that it's not safe, Secret Service now was telling him it's not safe to come back. They wanted him to remain somewhere else safe. Uh, there were other suggestions of where he should go. There was a bunker, things like that. Air Force One then went to Alfort Air Force Base, where Bush went into a bunker this time. Now he started to get Cheney-like treatment. He was taken into an underground bunker designed to withstand a nuclear blast. And this is when he had a, I guess, some infamous teleconference video call with Rumsfeld, Richard Armitage, Tennant, Norman Mineta, Condoleezza Rice, Dick Cheney. This is a really bizarre tidbit that I must have completely forgotten about 9-11. Paul Thompson says that, as a side note, Warren Buffett, one of the richest people in the world, was hosting an unpublicized charity benefit inside the high-security Offutt military base at 8 a.m. With him were business leaders and several executives from the World Trade Center, including Anne Tatlock of Fiduciary Trust Co. International, who likely would have died 
had it not been for the meeting. They watched a lot of the television coverage that morning, but it's unknown if any of these people were still at Ulfut by the time Bush arrived in the afternoon. That is so fucking crazy. That Warren Buffett and other CEOs, like executives who would have been working in the World Trade Center that day, were in a secret bunker in a fucking military base. That is absolutely ridiculous. Come on. Come the fuck on. And Paul Wolfowitz apparently got his way at some point by the point that Bush did his basically his final official speech where he only spoke for five minutes where he basically lays out the Wolfowitz Doctrine. It would later be called the Bush Doctrine, but in actuality it is the Wolfowitz Doctrine at its core. Bush stated, we will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. Got to the tip of the iceberg here. There's so much more to talk about. And unfortunately, this this has been a very long podcast so far. I didn't get a chance to talk about everything I wanted to. But I will say that this will continue in different forms. We will be doing something again about the anthrax attacks on the 20th anniversary or near it in early October on Media Roots Radio. And we will also be talking about Rudy Giuliani's connections to 9-11 and destroying the crime scene and the evidence of not just the 9-11 attacks, but also potentially evidence in the 2001 anthrax murders. And on the interactive map, you might have already seen that there is a layer there for Giuliani activities. And if you already kind of line them up with the anthrax layer, you'll start seeing some interesting connections. Like with people named Lev Parnas, who happens to be a criminal associate of Rudy Giuliani who got arrested for fraud. You can also find interesting connections between Giuliani and his associates and the proximity of 9-11 hijackers. For example, in one instance, an address given out by his associate Lev Parnas is within 0.3 miles of a known 9-11 suspect's address. There's some strange coincidences lining up here, to say the least. When you start overlaying all these things together, and looking at them as potentially one larger event that's connected together in some way. So I recommend that you use this resource, and if you want me to add anything else to it, please let me know if you know of anything else important or relevant. Now, unfortunately, I am using a Google thing to make this interactive map, and there is a limitation to how many layers I can add to it. We can always copy the map, make new variations of it. In fact, if you want to, I'd be happy to copy the map for you and share and make an editable version just for you personally, if you want me to do that. Right now, the way I'm sharing it is not editable. I'm in control of the default view and all that stuff on it. But if you want to start building your own connections, maybe even to other things, I mean, like if you're an Epstein person, for example, I'm sure you can add Epstein things to this. I don't know exactly what purpose that would serve, but... Go nuts. Go nuts with it. If you know the history of CIA Cuban stuff, uh, black ops in Florida, 
with addresses of known people and participants and cutouts. I mean, definitely put those on there in some capacity. I think that would be really helpful. I think it'd just be, it, this could be an interesting project beyond 9-11 anthrax and all this stuff. It's such a pivotal event. If we can map out as much stuff as possible just for these things in a location like Florida and start getting leads from them, um, I think that that's promising. And this is just my, this is just my small contribution. And I'm not the first person to do something like this either. There have been other people that have made interactive maps relating to 9-11. But the only thing that I'm doing here that's unique is combining all these things together on the same map and also giving you, I would say, information that's never really been made public before in one place about where some of these specific locations are. So you can really, really get a specific geographical layout of all these different events, addresses related to anthrax, etc. But I think that that's the right way to do it for now. If you're listening out there and you really want access to it, uh, to follow along with this, just make sure you're not just going to throw all this information on some blog post or on Twitter. Just use common sense. Like all the addresses having to do with the Israeli art students and the 9-11 hijackers, I couldn't care less about releasing any of that stuff. You know, if you want to be the one to blow the name of the or the address of some of these Saudi potential financiers of 9-11, like the one on Longboat Key that I found on here that I don't want to give out publicly on the podcast, be my guest. I think I actually got it off of um, a private detective's document who was hired in Florida to look into this. So it's not even my original find. I mean, the only original find there is I didn't see anybody showing how close this was to where Bush was staying. But things like victims of the anthrax attacks, any victims here, um, I would be careful putting any of that stuff online. You know, someone like, let's say, Gloria or Mike Irish, very sketchy connections to 9-11 attacks, but let's just try to keep it sort of under the radar in terms of these specific addresses for now. And you're happy to just look at this information and use it as a, a key to research things. And if you find any errors, by all means, please reach out to me and let me know. And also keep in mind, this is not a timeline-oriented map yet. I do eventually want to make some kind of timeline map where I can scroll from, say, late 90s to early 2000s, like 2002, and see these things pop up, like when they were supposed to happen. Like, for example, when were the, some of these hijackers living at these addresses? When did they use these addresses? For how long? That'll actually really help, I think, establish more how related some of these things actually are. Some of the addresses are a little bit redundant in the sense that I've gone and tried to find multiple addresses for related people. Some of those properties could be owned after 9-11. Some of them could be owned before. They could have been sold before 9-11. So be careful when looking through some of that stuff. Some of the hijackers listed addresses. It's unspecific when they were from. But I will tell you that in terms of the hijacker activity, the anthrax attacks, the Israeli art students' activity, it all lines up in relatively the same time frame within a few months window. So that stuff, timing-wise, I mean, I could have put times on here and, I, and labeled them all, 
Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, it's not necessary because most of the research out there shows that this was happening around the same time. In that regard, I don't think it, that's going to make a big difference. The stuff that may make a big difference, though, is finding out some of the specificity in terms of like Giuliani's anthrax cleanup company when he got in the mix down there, the timing of that. So thank you again, everybody, for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this. If you have any ideas or suggestions, like I said, please let me know. I don't want to be doing this by myself, and that's probably evident of the fact that I'm just handing over all this information and all this research that I've done in a, in a very raw form like this. I'm just telling you the tip of the iceberg of what this could all mean. I'm not the first person to think that Florida in and of itself is one of the most important areas to be looking at in regards to 9-11. But I'm also telling you it's one of the most important areas to be looking at as far as the anthrax attacks too, because this is where it started. Promise there will be more next time on the next episode of Media Roots Radio for the 20th anniversary of Amerithrax. Thank you again for listening, everybody. Thank you again for being a subscriber to Media Roots Radio if you are a subscriber listening right now. Um, and if you're not a subscriber, please consider subscribing. And not just so you can get access to the map, but, you know, to support our work. Thank you very much. Have a good night, everybody.